Let me read Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, just as in all the world also, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. And he has also informed us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason also, since the day we have heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every kind of work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. I'll pray. God, we do thank you again for um, Jesus and all that he is, truly the all in all, and in the one in whom we are complete. I pray, God, that as we look at your word, that Jesus would be exalted and our hearts would be at rest and peace in him because of his supremacy and his sufficiency over all that there is. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, I appreciate Jeff making us start out laughing. The burden is off of me. Um, Reminded me of, um, I made a phone call to somebody a few years back that I'd never met, but I had heard that he had taken an unpopular stand on something, and um, I wanted to commend him, because I figured when you make a stand like he did, you'd get a lot more attack than you do um, praise, and so I called him up to say I'd heard what he'd done, and, and just to praise him for it. And so I left a nice voice message on his answering machine because he didn't pick up the phone. And the last words I've heard myself saying before I hung up the phone were, in Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> and I thought, I am an idiot. I, I hope I never meet this guy after having, he probably doesn't want to meet me either. You know, the hardest thing about, about things like that when we embarrass ourselves um, is that it's just another reminder that we are um, idiots. Um, and we don't like being reminded of that. Is we don't like proving it, and we certainly don't want other people to remind us of it. Um, but it brings me to what we're going to talk about here with starting a new series on Colossians. Because we, are, we happily admit 
when we read in John 15, um, we can do nothing apart from him. And we go, amen. We can do nothing apart from him. But it's another thing for the Lord to just rub our face in it, as it feels like sometimes. Because we have to be reminded over and over and over again. We can do nothing apart from him. We can't tie our shoelaces apart from the grace of God. We couldn't have a sound thought apart from the grace of God. We are totally dependent upon God and his sufficiency, his sustaining grace. And totally means totally. You know, even in heaven, I mean, this is something that I think, well, when we get to heaven, we'll get over this preoccupation with what we are incapable of doing. And finally, we'll just get it. Jesus is the only one who's able. And we'll just rejoice in it. And that'll be the end of it. Maybe not. Because when John went to heaven in a vision, and he's standing there in heaven, and and there's a book to be opened with seven seals. And there is no one found worthy to open the book with its seven seals. And so there says there was a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. And John did what any of us would do when our inadequacy is exposed. He cried like a baby. Right there in heaven. He's going, and maybe he's thinking, you know, in heaven, everybody's going to be adequate. Everybody in heaven is going to be sufficient. And he's standing around, and there's not one person who can open up this book. And he's going, you've got to be kidding me. And he's crying. I began to weep greatly because no one was found to open the book, worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. So even in heaven, John is experiencing that common experience of being exposed for his inadequacy and having everybody else's inadequacy exposed, and he's just undone. And he has to be sternly reminded that's the truth. There is no adequacy, no sufficiency in any creature God has ever made. The adequacy, the sufficiency is only in Jesus Christ. Stop weeping. We can weep over our inadequacy, our inability, our folly, and just go, God, when will it ever be any different? Well, I've got good news for you. It's never going to be any different. It's never going to change. As a friend of mine said years ago, he says, I used to have an inferiority complex. And then I discovered I was inferior. (laughs) He got over the complex. It's just the truth. The only one who is sufficient and able and powerful and worthy is Jesus Christ. And Paul writes this letter here to the saints of Colossians because he wants them to not 
substitute anything for the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. There's a direct connection between the, the, the sufficiency of Christ and the sufficiency of Scripture. And it's not because they're one and the same, but Scripture is the, the spoken word of Jesus Christ. And the nature of Scripture is the same as the nature of Christ, because he speaks out of his being. And so all evangelicals profess sufficiency in Scripture. And if you deny the sufficiency of Scripture, you're labeled as a heretic. But do we really believe that everything that God, that we need to know, that needs to be revealed to us from God, has been revealed in Scripture and in the person of Jesus Christ? If we really believe that, our hearts would reflect much more peace and rest than they often do. Jesus is sufficient. Again, I'm talking to myself. I told you last Sunday, you know, a couple days before Easter, I wake up, you know, 3 o'clock in the morning, 4 o'clock in the morning, my heart just pounding and racing 160, 180 miles an hour because I'm anxious, not trusting in the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, not believing that he alone is adequate. Some scholars look at Colossians as well as others of Paul's epistles, and they say that he was addressing a heretical teaching at the time called Gnosticism. The problem with that view is that scholars also say that Gnosticism didn't even come into being until the second or third century. And Paul's writing in the first century, 60 to 63 AD. And so it's, it's I think more true to what Paul is saying, just to understand that it's not, these different heresies just come around at different times. And they can be unique for a particular people at a particular time, and then we don't see them again for hundreds of years. But one thing is constant. We want to be adequate. And when we feel inadequate, which we all do every day, the temptation is to look for something other than Jesus to feel that sense of inadequacy. We feel stupid, so we need to go to more school. Whatever. We, you know, we, 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 we're constantly looking to do something to fill the hole that inadequacy represents. And we do everything but just simply come back to Jesus and trust in him. There are only two churches that Paul wrote to that he had never personally visited before he wrote them the church in Rome, and the church in Colossae. So Paul will say in this letter, I'm looking forward to seeing you. I've never seen you. So it's very clear in this letter, Paul had never been to these people. And Colossians and and Romans are probably the two letters that are the clearest in bringing people back to the centrality of Jesus Christ and what the gospel is about. And I think it's because Paul, having not started those churches, he didn't lead these people to Christ, he, doesn't, he knows he can't assume that they have really been grounded in the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. That the gospel is, not only does it take God to save you, but it takes God to live this life. And so he doesn't just assume that they've heard that. And so there are no, two, no epistles that are, of Paul's that are clearer on that Jesus Christ is the only one that is necessary and sufficient 
for both saving you and living the Christian life as the epistles of Romans and Colossians. Because Paul hadn't been there. And he knows that very likely these people have never heard that. And they need to hear it. Paul understands that as is always the case when people are Christians are, are dealing with how is it that I've put my, my faith in the sovereign God to save me and yet I still find life so impossible to live. Paul knows that the tendency is for people to come in behind him and to say, well, that's because there's something more that you need. And that has never changed. It's never changed. And Paul's going to say in this letter over and over again, Jesus is the all in all. And we have been made complete in him. There is nothing more than Jesus. If Jesus is not enough, then nothing is enough. That's the truth. There was a very... um, I always struggle when I'm preaching with naming names or not. Because the names that I would name are people that you recognize. Um, And part of me says, well, that's the part of a shepherd is to identify wolves. And so I'm not doing wrong by naming a name. And the other part of me goes, it doesn't really matter. The point is the teaching. Well, there's a teaching out there, and it's still going on today, of a certain movement of Christianity that very much focuses on signs and wonders. The leader, former leader, and, and really um, originator of the modern expression of that was being quizzed by some theologians one time of whether he believed in the sufficiency of Scripture or not. Well, this founder of this movement was theologically aware enough to know that the proper answer to that question is yes. I believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. Well, his new best friend was a man that used to teach at Dallas Theological Seminary and was my, one of my Hebrew professors when I was there. And he's standing there observing this conversation. And he says to the founder of this movement, he says, um, you don't believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. And this is a guy who's got a lot of theological training. And he says, I don't? And he goes, no, you don't. This is what they mean by the sufficiency of Scripture. And what they mean is, is that when God gave us the revelation of the 66 books of the Bible, that there is nothing more that you need to hear other than what God has said in his word. This is it. This is the revelation and it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so there's no, there is not any longer a need to be hearing new revelations, new words. Now, anyone who believes in the sufficiency of Scripture does not necessarily deny that God continues to speak. I certainly believe God continues to speak. I trust Him constantly to speak to me. But the point is, He never exceeds what is written. He will never contradict it. He will never go beyond it. And that this book becomes, is the authority for anything that we would believe that God is saying or doing today. And the founder of that movement said, well, when you put it that way, you're right. I do not believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. 
because he believes there are ongoing revelations that are on the same level of authority as Scripture. That's a serious problem. I appreciate his honesty, though, when confronted with it. And again, I think most of us, if we really just had to sit down and be quiet with the Lord and say, God, do I really believe that you are sufficient for all that I'm facing? I think we would have to be just as frank and candid as the founder of that movement. We all have at least our moments when we are not believing that Jesus is sufficient. We are inadequate. Christ is adequate. We are insufficient. He is sufficient. He is the preeminent one. He is the only one who is worthy. Only him. Apart from him, we can do nothing. That is what scripture says. And that is good news. We have to face the truth. We can do nothing apart from him, but also rest in the confidence that Jesus Christ is sufficient. And we live at rest, and we live at peace. In the Sermon on the Mount, there's that well-known passage there where Jesus says, why are you worrying about what you will eat and, what you shall, and how you shall clothe yourself? Look at the lilies of the field. Even Solomon was not clothed like any of these. Look at the birds of the air. Which of them falls to the ground without your father, Heavenly Father, knowing about it? They neither toil nor spin, yet your Father, Heavenly Father, feeds them all and cares for them. His point, clearly, is don't just say that God is sovereign and then live in fear and anxiety. There should be a direct correlation between what we confess to be true about Jesus Christ and how we live. That poem that we have hanging on our kitchen wall said, The robin to the sparrow, I should really like to know why these anxious human beings rush about and worry so. Said the sparrow to the robin, I think that it must be that they have no heavenly father such as cares for you and me. See, if he is truly sufficient, all-powerful, and he loves us, then that should translate in to rest and peace. No need to go beyond him. No need to try to add to our faith, to try and secure some knowledge that we haven't yet heard. We've been given everything necessary for a life of godliness, a life that reflects Christ and is worthy of him. So Paul starts his letter here, and I'm going to, as I work through Colossians, I, th- I think I'm going to use um, Warren Wearsby's outline. That guy is so simple, and I appreciate the simplicity because, again, I'm stupid. And um, he divides this book up into three major sections. First, doctrine, chapter one. Christ's preeminence declared. Second, danger. Christ's preeminence defended, chapter two. And then chapters three and four, duty. Christ's preeminence demonstrated. That's about as good as it gets. Doctrine, Christ's preeminence declared. Danger, Christ's preeminence defended. 
In duty, chapters 3 and 4, Christ's preeminence demonstrated. So the book starts out, as Paul does with most of his epistles, his letters, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. God was the one who determined that Paul would be an apostle, Timothy, a faithful companion of Paul's. To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Paul calls them saints. He calls them faithful brethren. Again, every person who has placed his faith in Jesus Christ is at that moment declared by God to be a saint. The church does not declare sainthood. God makes us saints when we place our faith in Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. Every one of Paul's 13 epistles have that salutation. Grace and peace be to you. Grace comes from the Greek word charis and peace from the Hebrew word shalom. And so it's as though Paul said, I don't know a better way to introduce any of my letters and bring together the two factions of Jew and Gentile than to address, than to say grace and peace. We need God's grace and we want to live in his peace. And so Paul would begin his letters that way, grace to you and peace from God our Father. And then he starts out encouraging. He says, we thank, give thanks to God for you. And again, as was so typical in most of his letters, he began with a word of encouragement before he addresses the first problem. He says, I don't want to just start out and hit you over the head with what's wrong. I want to thank, express my thanks to God for you. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. A constancy in prayer. Paul was an encouraging guy. He wasn't just a guy who came and and dropped the truth on people and blew them up and walked away, but he sought to build up, to encourage and to strengthen, and that included praying constantly for people. And And the basis of his thanksgiving, verse 4 Three things, we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, we've heard of your your faith in Christ Jesus, and the love which you have for all the saints in verse 5, because of the hope laid up for your faith, love, and hope. Your faith in Christ Jesus, and we thank God. I noted the same with, with 1 Corinthians, and again, it's just a theme that runs through Paul's letters. If there's one thing that encouraged him as he heard about people, was just the simple truth that they are continuing in the faith. They continue to believe Jesus and to walk with Jesus. And nothing would grieve Paul more and should grieve our hearts more than to hear of someone who has placed their faith in Christ, but they've turned away from him. And so Paul thanked God for their continued faith. And their love, which they have for all the saints. Now remember, the theme of this letter is the preeminence of Jesus Christ. So even though Paul is saying, we are grateful this is true of you, he's not thanking them for these things. He's thanking God for these things. In other words, he is attributing to God the fact that they are in the faith and the fact that they love all the saints and that they have a hope for what is yet to come. It's the work of God. No man can take credit 
for his faith, his love, his hope. These things are manifestations of God's activity in our lives. We may not be healed from all of our diseases. We may not see the dead being raised. But if you're seeing faith and love and hope in your own heart and in the heart of someone else, you are seeing the work of God. You hear me with that? You may not see any of the signs and wonders as people want to define them. But if you are seeing the present activity, the reality of faith and hope and love, that in itself is the work of God. And that's why Paul is thanking God. Because God is at work. He doesn't mention a single miracle other than that miracle, which is a miracle. That God could take a people who are so self-absorbed and put in them a love for all the saints. Not just the ones they like, but for all of them. And it's supernatural. Going from a committed love of self to an abandonment of that love to a love for all the saints. And what inspires that faith and love? The hope that has been laid up for you in heaven. Because of your hope, you have faith and love, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. And then he starts talking about the gospel and the nature of the gospel. And you could say here, the sufficiency of the gospel. But again, the gospel is Jesus Christ himself. And so he's talking here about the sufficiency of Christ, the power of Christ. The gospel which has come to you, just as in all the world also, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing. It is living and active and dynamic. Nobody has to make the gospel increase. Nobody has to make the gospel bear fruit. It is its nature to increase. It is its nature to bear fruit. Because it's a seed that when planted, it grows. And then the supernatural aspect of the gospel, again, and it speaks to the activity of God, is that this is a seed, and I'm no farmer, but this is a seed that you can plant anywhere in the world and it flourishes. What other seed is like that? I'd like to have an orange tree in my backyard or a tangerine tree because my grandparents down in Harlingen when I was growing up had a yard full of citrus fruit. And it's hopeless to plant a tangerine tree in my backyard. For one, we've only got about a half an inch of dirt. And after that, it's rock. And we get too many freezes. So I can have the best tangerine seeds in the world. And I am not going to grow a tangerine tree in my backyard. Not in central Texas. But the seed of God's word, you can plant it anywhere in this world. From the first century to when Jesus comes again. And it'll take root. And it'll grow. It'll flourish. And it'll bear fruit. There is nothing else like that. Any other, and this is where, again, these, these different fads that come around, these different so-called truths that come around, and if you just did this, then you would have more vitality in your Christian life. They're all just fads. I can remember years ago, somebody told me they were going to um, go to a, a seeker-friendly church. And I just, you know, again, I'm... I don't know a lot about church history, but I know enough that, you know, I'd read about church history. There's never been seeker-friendly churches. Not like we're seeing today. And I, and I just said, well, you know, God's blessing on you. 
You know, if that's what you feel God wants you to do, I, you know, I understand you maybe want to be in a church where evangelism is being more emphasized and, you know, blessings on you. Well, what do you really think about it? And I said, well, what I really think about it is I think it's a fad. And I think it's going to burn itself out because it's not centered on Jesus Christ, the proclamation of him and his word. And, and so because it's a, it's a subtle departure and it looks like a good thing, but it always is. The good is the enemy of the best. It's not focused simply on Jesus Christ and the proclamation of his word. I think it's a fad. And already, just in the few years since then, we're not hearing nearly as much about the seeker-friendly churches as we once heard. It seems to be petering out. I could be wrong. But the gospel is for all people, all times, all cultures. There's nothing else like it. It is a truth that does not need any assistance because it is the truth. It's not a truth. It is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you have heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. The gospel is unique. It is the word of truth, he says here. It is the basis of hope and faith and love. It is the grace of God in truth, not a truth, the word of truth, the the grace of God in truth. And it is for all the world, all times, all places. It's God's activity. It is an expression of the preeminent Jesus Christ at work in the world today. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, and he has also informed us of your love in the Spirit. Why does he throw Epaphras in there? Paul wasn't dropping names so as to be respected or have the doors open for him. Again, keep in mind that what we're going to see with Colossians is this error, this temptation, is to try to say Jesus is not enough and to add something to Jesus. And Paul is wanting to just, from the very outset here in verse 7 and 8, just say, I'm not one of those guys. I am not sending you this letter so I can tell you something more than what you got from Epaphras. So he's showing the continuity, the connection, the consistency between himself and Epaphras. Same message. Two different men, same message. He says, I'm not adding to anything he said to you. I'm not going beyond anything he said to you. The message you got from him is the right message. It is the only message. They're not in competition with each other. They're not trying to to build on each other. They're co-laborers in the same message, the same work, the same Jesus Christ. There's a oneness here, and that's why he brings in Epaphras. For this reason also, since the day we have heard it, heard of what? Their faith in Jesus Christ. We have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Isn't that what the Gnostics would say? Isn't that what so many people come in with their conferences? And we just want you to be filled with the knowledge of the will of the God. And see, that's where, again, it sounds like the same thing. Paul's using the same words that they would use. 
But Paul means it differently. We are praying that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and in all understanding. Well, that sounds very esoteric. That sounds very mystical, like there's this, this secret knowledge that Paul wants to drop on us. Isn't that the same thing these other guys are saying? Nope, not at all. Same words, different understanding that Paul has. So why? So that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. So why are we praying that you would have, be filled with the knowledge of his will and that you would have spiritual wisdom and understanding? It's not so that you become part of an elite group of Christians who know something that the others don't know. It's not to puff you up in experience or puff you up in intellect. It's so that you would walk in a manner worthy of Jesus. He never takes them beyond Christ. He's not adding to Christ. He's saying, I want you to grow in Christ. And he's going to constantly in this letter bring them back to the person of Jesus Christ. When he speaks of being filled with the knowledge of his will, what is the knowledge of God's will? That we would walk in a manner worthy of Christ. Well, how do you do that? By Christ. The only one who can walk in a manner worthy of Christ is Christ himself. So we can do nothing apart from him. It takes Christ to walk in a manner worthy of Christ. See, that's where Paul's going with this. He goes, I'm not going to drop some knowledge on you that nobody else has ever given you on how you can live the Christian life. Paul says, Jesus lives the Christian life. He's the only one who's sufficient for anything. He is the all in all. You've been made complete in him. That's where he's going with this. So yeah, I want you to be filled with the knowledge of his will. And the will of God for you is Jesus. And that's never going to change. That we'd be like him, that we would know him, that we would be brought into conformity to him. And as he says here in his prayer, that we would walk in a manner worthy of him. That you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. To please him in all respects. What does that look like? Bearing fruit in every good work. Increasing in the knowledge of God. Strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Attaining to all the steadfastness, of the attaining of all steadfastness and patience and joyously giving thanks to the Father. Paul says, I want you, just like these false teachers, I want you to be filled with wisdom. I'm not saying be stupid and be ignorant. I want you to be filled with the knowledge of God's will with all spiritual wisdom and understanding. But Jesus Christ is the summation of all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Right? He himself is the summation of all wisdom and understanding. Jesus is himself the wisdom of God, Paul will say in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So I want you to know God's will, which is Jesus Christ. I want you to be filled with wisdom and understanding. And Christ is the summation of all of that. But I want you to know this, not so that you'd become puffed up, so that your life would look like what you believe. That you would practice and manifest what you confess. That you would walk in a manner worthy of Christ. As I tell our students all the time in his hill, either your theology is going to determine your ethics or your ethics is going to determine your theology. And it goes both ways. And Paul says, I want your theology to be Christocentric, absolutely focused on Jesus Christ and his preeminence, so that your life is worthy of him.
who is the only one who is worthy. It's not compartmentalized. I say Jesus can do anything. Jesus is my sufficiency. Jesus is my Savior. And I'm panicked and filled with anxiety. Or I'm living an ungodly, immoral lifestyle. It's like saying, Jesus is the truth. But don't wait for me to speak the truth because I'm lying with everything that comes out of my mouth. What's wrong with that picture? If Jesus is the truth, then you ought to be hearing the truth through me. If Jesus is the sovereign Lord who lovingly cares for his creation and all of his children, then I should be at peace. Jesus said, do not be troubled. In this world you will have much tribulation, but I have overcome the world. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Our theology should impact our behavior. And so Paul's praying, I pray that your theology is great so that your life is transformed by what you believe. Strengthened with all power, we will always be weak. That'll never change. But we can know his strength through his power. Not by our effort, but by his power. Strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. For the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. Joyously giving thanks to the Father in all the circumstances of life. Because he has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. I want to read some comments here from... This is also from Warren Wearsby about this book. So I'll just summarize by giving these summary statements that he gives. He says, The heresy that's being presented to these people promised people such a close union with God that they would achieve spiritual perfection. Spiritual fullness could be theirs only if they entered into the teachings and ceremonies prescribed. There was also a full knowledge, a spiritual depth that only the initiated could enjoy. This wisdom would release them from the early earthly things and put them in touch with heavenly things. That's what they were being sold. They offered fullness and freedom. And those will be two key words in this letter. Fullness and freedom keep coming back and back. A satisfying life that solved all the problems that people face. Do we have any of this heresy today? Yes, we do. And it is just as deceptive and dangerous. When we make Jesus Christ and the Christian revelation only part of a total religious system or philosophy, we cease to give him the preeminence. When we strive for spiritual perfection or spiritual fullness by means of formulas, disciplines, or rituals, we go backward instead of forward. Christian believers must beware of mixing their Christian faith with such alluring things as yoga, transcendental meditation, oriental mysticism, and the like. We must also beware of deeper life teachers who offer a system for victory and fullness that bypasses devotion to Jesus Christ. In all things, we must have, he must have the preeminence. 
These false teachers tried to change people from the outside by means of diets and disciplines. But true spiritual growth comes from within. You've heard the book Celebration of Discipline. Roger Foster, I think, was the author of it. The problem with those books is that they're trying to bring transformation by outward discipline. The disciplines aren't the problem, but we're looking for the disciplines to be the means of godliness rather than Christ to be the means of godliness. I don't know any godly people who haven't lived disciplined lives, but Christ is the means for the, for the discipline. Christ is the mean for the godliness and not the disciplines themselves. We get it backwards. And then finally, the report from Epaphras concerned Paul that these believers truly knew Christ and were born again. But there was much more to learn from him and about him that, 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 but there was much more to learn from him and about him. You do not heed, need a new spiritual experience, Paul was saying. You only need to grow in the experience you have already had. When a person is born into God's family by faith in Jesus Christ, he is born with all that he needs for growth and maturity. This is the theme of Colossians, and you are complete in him. No other experience is needed than the new birth. Do not look for something new, Paul warned the church. Continue to grow in that which you received at the beginning. It's a wonderful letter. I'm looking forward to us diving into it. Jesus Christ is exalted. He is preeminent. Paul wants us to walk in a manner worthy of him. And he's going to just constantly bring this church and bring us back to that reminder There is nothing more we'll ever need than what we were given the moment we placed our faith in Christ. Is the one who is the sovereign God, the preeminent one, who is worthy of all, who alone can open the book with its seven scrolls, lives in you and me. And that is enough. He is more than adequate. There's an old story of a guy that bought a Royals Royce. Can't imagine even thinking about that. And he kept corresponding with the factory head about his Royals Royce, when it was going to be delivered. And then he started asking questions like, you know, um, how fast will it go? And he got back, this was back in the teletype days, he got back a teletype. It is at the speed, its maximum speed is adequate. Well, that was kind of vague. Well, how many horsepower does it have? The answer, it is adequate. And to every question the man asked, he got back the same response, it is adequate. That may not be good enough, but it should be. Jesus Christ is more than adequate. And we thank God that we have him and he holds us in the palm of his hand. And whatever any of us are going through, Jesus Christ is sufficient, preeminent, he is adequate. I'll close us in prayer. I thank you, God, that our, our hope and our faith are not misplaced. That in hoping in Jesus and in believing in Jesus, we will not be disappointed. But I do pray, God, that we would encourage one another to not go beyond him. 
and that we would live in a pure and simple devotion to Christ. That he would be exalted in each of our hearts and that the truth that we confess doctrinally would govern our lives. That it wouldn't just be a nod to a, to a creed, but that we would be yielded to the one who is the all in all, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, God, for the faith, the love, and the hope that you have brought into being in each of us. And it is the miraculous power of God at work in us. And we thank you for that. And just as you brought us, God, into the faith and you birthed in us a love for others and not just being stuck on ourselves, and you've given us a hope that will not perish, we trust you, Lord, to sustain us and to sustain the hope and faith and love that you've given us. And our trust is in you. And we thank you, Jesus, for all that you are. In Christ's name, amen.